One of the dirtiest words for most business people is networking. Most people would rather clean a stinky dead fish than fumble around with an hors d'oeuvre and make small talk at a networking event. If you're one of those people, then today's guest is going to help reframe the activity of networking to one that you will actually enjoy. And yes, I'm aware that I said the word enjoy in the same sentence as networking. My guest is also a passionate storyteller and a story coach. In our conversation, she shares her one thing that can help you shift your stories from being snoozers to being captivating. Her name is Marsha, and I'll let her tell you her last name and why her business is called Yes, Yes, Marsha. She has a ton of experience in broadcast radio and an infectious spirit, as you will soon see. If this is your first time listening to The Podium Project, welcome. It's a podcast about great public speaking, storytelling, and persuasion. My name is Trevor Curry, and I'm founder of Podium Consulting and The Podium Project. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Marsha. Marsha, how do you explain what you do when people ask you what you do? You know, the irony is one of the services I do for people is help them answer the question, what do you do? And uh, and yet I still struggle to do it myself. Um, it depends on the context. Actually, one of the things that I teach when I teach people how to answer the question, what do you do, is it very much depends on context. So if I am somewhere where the storytelling angle is more interesting, then usually the like straight answer I'll say to cab drivers is I teach people how to tell their own stories. If I'm at a networking event, then I might say I help people make instant emotional connections with um, either their dream clients or dream collaborators through teaching them how to tell their own stories in a way that's compelling and makes people hang off their every word and how to do networking in a way that doesn't make them want to cry or be sick and that's actually fun. Those are a lot of big promises, and I'm really looking forward to learning about how to do those things myself. Uh, the first thing I'm definitely curious about is how many cab drivers are asking you what you do for a living, because I'm clearly taking different taxis than you. Marsha, I think one of your techniques, I should just ask you first if it's true, but the importance of asking the question why as it relates to what do you do what you do, and if that is indeed a helpful question to pose, what's your answer to the question why do you do what you do? <sighs> another one that I teach people on and I'm still kind of figuring out. I kind of have two slightly different answers. The reason I teach people to do the networking stuff is because I worked in radio and I was terrified of networking because I knew what networking was and I knew that it meant I needed to walk up to the most important person in the room and say, hi, you look amazing. Love your shoes. Love your work. Listen, work with me and I can make you big bucks and then hand them my card. And that was really scary to me. And then what I realized through getting a lot of very sought after jobs in radio and then also I used to choose music for TV shows and I chose music for some really big TV shows in the UK that in between us and made in Chelsea. And I got all of those jobs through networking, but it wasn't through walking up to someone and telling them how great their tie was. It was just through making friends with people I liked and then keeping in touch with them and then asking them for favors. And so once I kind of realized that I felt like I had uncovered this secret. And so I just want to tell people because so many people don't do networking because they think it's this other thing. And actually it's a thing that they love. So that's with the networking stuff. And with the storytelling stuff, I'm just obsessed obsessed with storytelling and, and telling true stories. And it came out of a love for a podcast that I know you love, The Moth, 
which if you aren't listening to The Moth, uh, you should totally go and listen to their free podcast. It's amazing. And then I told a story at a storytelling show in London called True Stories Told Live and found it to be this deeply profound experience. I told a story about the death of my granny and I felt like I got to spend time with her again through the process of telling the story. And then when I moved to Toronto, I asked them if I could set up a True Stories Told Live here. And I did. And it grew from having three people, one of whom was my mom, in the audience to having kind of consistently between 150 and 200 people at the Garrison in West Toronto, which is where we have it now. And I was coaching all of the storytellers through that and just loved doing it and realized that actually I had cut my chops doing it when I was in radio, on music radio, because you're having to cut your stories from 20 minutes down to 20 seconds, because after 20 seconds, the jingle's going to kick in and you have to stop talking because someone else is going to. So it's partly, you know, it's fun to do a thing that you're good at and that you love doing, but also just love hearing people's stories. And I think this is, it taps into something primal in us. You know, this is how we used to communicate information when we were evolved, which is long before there was books. And this is how we used to comfort ourselves sitting around the fire at night. And so this is why people love it. And this is why I love it. And I think everybody does. And most people, not most people, but a lot of people aren't very good at telling stories. Because again, like with networking, they think it's this other thing. They think there's all these things that they have to do that they don't. So much that I want to follow up on and ask. I'm scribbling down notes madly because there's so much great stuff that you've already covered. Going back to some of my initial questions to you about how do you explain what you do? What's your answer to the why? And I noticed in response to both those questions, you acknowledge that despite the fact that you teach other people those things, you don't really have your refined answer. There's context considerations, all of which make sense. To what extent is the imperfection in your answers to my questions an important part of answering the questions in a way that is conducive to catalyzing a relationship where you don't want to sound too slick? Like, in short, is the imperfect answer a thoughtfully chosen strategy to answer the question? <laughs> yes, Trevor. No, it's totally not. It's totally not. And I agree that you don't want to sound too slick, but I do think that I need a better answer for both. I do think... I mean, what you really, really don't want to do, which I feel like I've already done today, is when someone says, what do you do? You don't want to go, oh, well, mm -mm, I, I kind of do like a bunch of things because that's boring. But the whole thing about someone asking, what do you do? Nine times out of 10, they don't really care. They're just trying to have a nice chat with you and they can't think of a more imaginative question. And when I teach networking, I don't really like the question, what do you do? I don't think it's conducive to interesting answers. I prefer, how's your week been? What was your favorite part? Or how was your weekend? But people are going to ask you, what do you do? And so you need to have an answer and you need to have an answer that you can say that isn't stuttery. And ideally you need an answer that people can kind of emotionally connect with on some level or, or at least connect with on any level where they understand what you're doing. And Marsha, for the people who may be listening who are in a fairly well-defined job or profession, for example, and so as soon as they announce their title, they tend to get a very common response. Are there any strategies that you have for those people. Stop announcing your title. That's the thing that 99% of people get wrong. They don't answer the question, what do you do? They answer the question, what is your job title on your resume? That's not what you do. Do is a verb. It's an action word. Tell me what you do. Don't tell me you're a dentist. Tell me you make people's teeth feel amazing. Because then if I want my teeth to feel amazing, I'm like, I need to give you a call, man. Plus it makes your job sound so much more exciting and fun. How did you know my teeth are not feeling amazing? <laughs> I can see them behind that microphone. No, they look great, Trevor. I'm dazzled. So it won't surprise you, given part of your role is helping people to do better networking, that my experience of talking to people about the act of networking is just cringe-inducing. And people, one of the most universal things I hear from people as it relates to communicating is that they hate small talk. 
So how do you help people turn this pain into a more pleasurable experience? So, so many people say to me when I tell them that I do networking coaching, oh yeah, I don't do networking because I hate small talk. And it makes me think of a guy that a friend of mine overheard once who was in a lineup saying, I'm just the kind of guy, I don't like to line up. I just don't like to cue. And it's like, yeah, you and everybody else, buddy. It's the same with small talk. Nobody enjoys small talk. I hate small talk. I just don't do it. Or small caveat, I think you often need one small talk question to enter a conversation because you want the person you're talking to to think that you have good judgment. And if you walk up to them and you say, hi, who did you lose your virginity to? (laughs) They're going to be like, I've just met you. You're a bit weird. I don't think I want to talk to you anymore. So I think it's okay to be like, how did you get here? Or have you been to this event before? Or isn't it sunny today or whatever. But then I think just start asking more interesting questions. And as I said, my favorite question is, depending on where you are in the week, how's your week been? What was your favorite part? And you always want the, what was your favorite part? Or what part did you really enjoy? Because you want people talking about something that they feel positively about. Or if it's, you know, Monday, how was your weekend? Even just how was your day? What was your favorite part? I did that with someone recently. I was at a networking event and I sat down next to this guy and I was nervous, but I faked my own self-confidence, which I've realized is a really big part of anything if you're nervous naturally. And I faked my own self-confidence and I'd said, you know, what's your name? And I said, how's your day been? And he was like, oh good. And I said, what was your favorite part? And he started telling me. And, and when you get someone talking about something that they're passionate about, it's more fun for you because talking to someone about something that's a bummer is a bummer, but it's also more fun for them. And people always remember better how you made them feel than actually what you said. And so they go away being like, wow, Trevor is such an interesting, great guy. Even if they did all of the talking, because they just remembered that they felt really good during that conversation. But also I feel like when you ask, how's your day been? What's your favorite part? You're more likely to hit on those common touch points than you would be if you just asked someone, what do they do? Because there could be a billion different things involved in their job. But if you just get them talking about their favorite thing you can be like oh like with this guy he did responsive website design and I don't know how to do that but I love a well-designed website and so we had a great conversation about that or their favorite part might have been that they played with their you know their new dog or that they went to see their daughter's Christmas concert and her class sang Katy Perry's Roar and then you can talk about how cool and fun that is you know you're more likely to have a fun interesting conversation and this is the thing about networking is I don't think most people hate networking because they hate small talk. I think people hate networking because they think it's this schmoozy, gross, kind of brown nosing thing. Whereas actually networking is just making industry friends. It's just walking into a room and going, who would I be friends with in this room, irrespective of what their job is? Or if there's like a particular subset of people that you do need to make a connection with, it's thinking, how can I make a friendship-like connection with them? And it's also about inquiry and getting things out of people and not about broadcasting how amazing you are. So there's a lot of really helpful things there, but fundamentally changing your mindset as it relates to approaching networking, it sounds like that's a critical prerequisite to people actually doing it. Yeah, that's the first thing I do with all of my clients for networking. And the most important thing to do is to shift your mindset and stop thinking that networking is about going up to the most important person. Like one of the things, one of the things that I get people say to me the most is, oh, when I meet someone for the first time, I'm really bad at selling myself. And I'm like, brilliant. Here's the answer. Stop doing it. Like if you went on a speed date and you sat down opposite someone and they were like everything you had ever wanted in a sweetheart visually. And then you said, you know, so tell me about yourself. And they said, well, I'd make a really excellent wife. I think I'll be a really good mother to our kids. Um, I think when we live together, I'm going to arrange the furniture brilliantly in our living room. You'd be like, whoa, I just met you. And it's the same with networking. If you walk up to someone and tell them what an amazing employee you'd be, or, you know, an 
amazing business coach or whatever. They're like, whoa, I don't even know if I want to have a conversation with you, let alone spend my money on you or, you know, hire you. And so don't do that. Just get to know them a little bit first. For people who they say, okay, you're getting me a little bit closer. I have a more openness to approaching networking because the way that you're reframing it. Great. Industry friends got it. There's a subset of people in the room that I really would love to get to know because they can make a huge difference for my career and I can make a big difference for them. But as I think about those people, my anxiety rises. So let's go back to that false confidence. What tips do you have to give people that extra kick of confidence so that they can approach the people who they think really do matter to them? Go and watch Amy Cuddy's TED Talk, which is about how your physical... um, your physical movements affect your brain chemistry. And if you spend two minutes in a power pose, which could be standing with your hands on your hips, Wonder Woman style, or with your arms up in the air in the washroom, if you do that for two minutes only, basically any movement that makes you big. So if you're sitting down, you can you can do the like man spread, legs open or put your arms behind the chair next to you. Do that for two minutes. It substantially lowers your cortisol, which is your stress hormone and raises your testosterone, which is your confidence hormone. So do Amy Cuddy movements and just generally, faking it. You know, one of the things Amy Cuddy talks about in that TED talk is not fake it until you make it, but fake it until you become it. And that was the case with me. Up until I was 18, I was painfully shy with people I didn't know. Once you got to know me, you couldn't shut me up. But up until then, I was so painfully shy. And then I realized I just started faking it. I just started pretending I was confident. And then everybody believed I was. And then I kind of had this moment where I was like, hang on, I behave as if I'm confident. Everyone else thinks I'm confident. Maybe. But it just starts making you comfortable in situations where you're uncomfortable. When I wrote a blog post called Behind the Scenes of My Brain Going to a Conference, and it talked about my internal monologue. And it's the same with every single conference I go to, where, you know, the night before I'm like, I'm going to get up at six and do some yoga and meditate and research the conference. And, you know, actually, it's two in the morning, and I'm still on Facebook. And all the way to the conference, I'm like, oh, my gosh, my gosh, everyone there is going to know each other. I'm going to be stood by myself. Why did I wear this dress? I think there is a coffee stain on my cardigan, you know, and I'm totally freaking out. And the first hour, I'm basically pretending that I'm comfortable and talking to people. And just by virtue of doing that, you become comfortable. One of the other things that I teach is people will always, always, always follow your physical cues. So if you behave like you're totally comfortable in any situation, that same networking event where I met that guy and we had the great conversation, which by the way, later on when I told him what I do, he said, yeah, when we started talking, I felt like I'd known you forever. And I was like, that's the power of that question. But that same thing, halfway through someone's talk, I went to the washroom and I kicked over my glass of water and it made this massive noise. And inside I was dying because the whole room suddenly looked at me, but I made my body behave like it was the most normal thing in the world. And everybody just stopped noticing. Whereas if I'd been like, oh, sorry, sorry, then it would have been awful. Mm -hmm. So make your body confident, even if you're not. What I find interesting as I was listening to you answer that question, it reminded me about there are times when I'm hired to speak and I'm part of the show that day and how I carry myself in the room for networking on those days is very different. I just walk up to anybody, any table, I stick out my hand and then I started to think, gosh, I don't do that when I'm not the person who people have come to see. What's the difference though? Because ultimately you're just there to meet people. And I find networking when I'm the speaker is so much easier. And so I've taken that same mindset to non-speaking events. And I found it's made a really big difference for me. And so I think it really speaks to the mindset elements that you've just spoken to. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. That was one of the rules I used to have for myself is walk like a pop star. It's be like, if I was, I'm dating myself here. If I was Madonna, who, how would everyone respond to me in the room? You know, if I was Katy Perry, how differently would everyone respond to me? How would I stand differently? And I find as soon as I'm like, okay, imagine I am Katy Perry. Imagine I am that famous in this room. I stand completely differently. My shoulders go back and my posture rises and I am sort of sturdy, but, but relaxed. And so fake it. And I think what also helps is to remember that other people in the room are inevitably feeling the exact same way that you are. And they appreciate you taking the lead and to create a sense of comfort where there could be discomfort for them. And this whole humanization of networking was driven home to me. I was recently listening to the Tim Ferriss show and one of his more recent episodes has Jamie Foxx as the guest. And Jamie Foxx telling the story that he had a party years ago at his house and Puff Daddy was there and Pharrell Williams was there, and this guy standing along the wall was standing there all by himself. And do you know who that person was? Who? It was Jay-Z. And this is before <laughs> Jay-Z was Jay-Z, and nobody knew who Jay-Z was. And so it was just got. there was a day when Jay-Z would just be a wallflower standing there. <laughs> yeah. And so it gives us permission to feel that awkwardness, but as you say, to get over it and to put on the air of confidence will really help. Totally, totally. And actually, one more thing I would add is if you are feeling nervous going to a networking event, particularly if there is a group of people that you think I need to make a connection with them. Again, stop thinking about broadcasting and start thinking about asking them questions. There's a Maya Angelou quote that I give to all of my clients, which is I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And if you go in and you show a genuine interest in someone and in what they do, and the way to do that, I think, if you ask someone what they do, for me, the best way to do the next line of questioning is imagine if you suddenly Freaky Friday style did a body swap with them and you had to be them and you had to go into their job. What would you know how to do? What wouldn't you know how to do? What would you find easy? What would you find hard? What would you find exciting? What would you find nerve wracking? And then start asking them about that. And when you show a genuine interest in people, they love it and they feel great. And then they leave the conversation thinking that you're amazing. And I've had so many times where I've had conversations with people where I have barely spoken a word about myself. And then I hear through someone else, them saying, God, Marsha is a fascinating woman. She's so interesting. And I haven't said anything about myself. All they know is that they left that conversation feeling really good. Yes. It's a timeless principle. I think Dale Carnegie said that you'll win more friends in 20 minutes, getting them to talk about themselves than in 20 years of you, as you say, broadcasting about mm. yourself. And if you're shy, then that's so great because you don't have to do any talking. <laughs> Yeah, I completely agree. One of the things that can help people be more effective with the inquiry approach, as you say, is just being better at listening. What tips, if any, do you have to help people get out of their heads thinking about what am I going to say next? What am I going to say next? So that they're more in the room and paying attention to what their conversation partner is actually saying. So there is a lady called Olivia Fox Caban who wrote a really amazing book called The Charisma Myth. And in it, she talks about how charisma is power, which is the fake yourself with Katy Perry self-confidence, warmth, which is, you know, really caring about the person and presence. And so she gives three suggestions on how to be present. One is just wiggle your toes. 
just to try and come back in the room. The second one is to look into the irises of the eyes of the person you're talking to. But my favorite one, which I use sometimes even with my best friends when I'm a bit tired and I find I'm drifting off as they're talking, is imagine that the person you're talking to is the lead character in an indie movie you're watching. Suddenly you're going to find everything about them totally fascinating and you're going to be gripped by what they're saying. It works like an absolute charm. One of the things that's obviously present, whether you're watching indie films, whether you're watching box set TVs, and you're binge consuming them is the importance of story. And I know that's certainly a passion of yours. A lot of people struggle with telling their own story. And I think you've already given some really helpful tips. Can you identify first what are the most common traps that people fall into when they do have to tell their story? And correspondingly, what are some ways they can avoid those traps? So I would say the two most common traps are number one, too much detail and thinking that telling a true story equates with having to tell every single detail in the story, or rather thinking that not including every single detail in the story is somehow lying. Most details of your story aren't important. I would say if you're bad at storytelling, you should practice and you should practice out loud to your empty living room at home. No shame in that. No one can hear you, apart from maybe your neighbors if you talk really loudly. And so don't think that you need to put every single tiny little bit of detail in. You know, one of the things that I suggest is actually going through, not writing out the story word for word, but kind of writing bullet points and then thinking, what can I get rid of and still get across what I want to get across? And, you know, that's what I used to have to do on the radio because I only had 20 seconds to tell a story. And so it's thinking, well, which of these elements, they might be really great, funny bits of the story, but actually they're not essential to the main point of getting that across. So cutting things out. And the other thing is starting in a boring way. The first 30 seconds of your story is the most important part because that defines whether or not people will actually want to keep listening. And the most important thing that you need to know about storytelling, if you only learn one thing from this entire interview, then let it be this. When you're telling a story, you're making a movie inside someone's brain. So everything that you think about, you have to think through that. And if you watch a movie that is entirely voiceover, it's boring. If you watch a movie that's entirely montage, it's boring. So you want to have action scenes and you always want to start in an action scene. Say I tell you about my trip to Europe. A voiceover way of telling you about my trip to Europe would be something with no picture. So I took a trip to Europe. We visited nine different countries and we had an interrailing pass where you could get on any train that you wanted to for a month. A uh, montage part is kind of very quick little visuals. So I went into railing in Europe. We walked down the canals in Amsterdam. We drank red wine in Paris. We went and saw street art in Berlin. But an action scene from that story would be, so I'm standing on the subway in Paris and this guy walks up to me and he reeks of booze and his hair is matted and there's like bits of food dribble down his front. And I kind of cringe as he walks towards me and he opens his mouth and says, excuse me, I'm terribly sorry. You seem to have dropped this 200 franc note. So that's an action scene. Now, obviously you can't do action scenes for your entire stories because you can't tell stories in real time. So that's when you use voiceover and montage to get from one scene to the next. But you always want to start in action. So many people, especially telling stories on stage, think that the story should start saying, this is a story about life, death, divorce, and my trip to Costa Rica. But that's a bit like going to see a movie and having Will Smith at the beginning of the movie walk up to the camera and be like, so in this movie, what happens is I'm a spy and then I get together with this lady and then I have three fights with bad guys and there's this Russian guy and it super looks like he's going to kill me, but don't worry because I totally get out alive. And then I get the girl and then we go and visit in the Dominican Republic for two weeks and it's amazing. Okay, now watch the movie. Like you suddenly don't care about the movie because you know everything that's going to happen. You start reverse engineering what's going to happen. And it's a boring way to start. 
start. Whereas if you start the movie with Will Smith hanging off a cliff while there's a bear snapping at his heels 20 feet down and, you know, two guys with guns running towards him, you're like, what's going to happen next? So for people that aren't immersed in the world of storytelling and film, can you help us understand what is voiceover, what is montage, and what's an action scene? And it's really the montage, I think, that people might not know. So montage is like really quick little pictures. So you might be, I don't know, telling a story about how you became a really excellent carpenter having never been able to make a table before. And you might start by saying, you know, I'm in the class and I saw off a piece of wood and I realize for the fifth time in a row, I've sawn off a piece of wood that's two inches too short and I throw the wood on the floor and I say, F this, I'm never doing it again. Then over the next few months, I make a table and the first one works and then I make two tables and then my mom comes and asks me to make a bookshelf and I make one for her. It's just like little flashbulbs without a lot of detail. Action is with the great detail and voiceover is where you don't really have any pictures at all. You say, I was doing carpentry classes for eight months and I became very good at making tables. That's super helpful. Marsha, for people that say, oh, this is fine and great for you, Marsha, you're fantastic. You're on radio for 20 years. You love to get up and tell transformative stories about your granny. That's amazing. I love people like Marsha. I'm just not Marsha. Are there some baby steps that people can take who, let's face it, have been doing a lot of voiceover so far? What are some little things that they can do to get them started? Just start trying to put little action scenes into your stories and practice on your friends. But as I said, if you're really nervous about this, then practice out loud to your empty bedroom. Because when you tell a story, it's very different to when it's written. You know, one of the rules at my show, I don't have many rules, but is that you're not allowed notes. Because when you write things down, it kind of deadens it. But also if you have a script, if you stray from the script, then you're going to freak out because you won't get the next bit right. Whereas if you just have some sort of vague ideas of what you're going to say. But I would say start just dropping little bits of action into your stories. And also don't think that you're your stories need to be these perfectly neatly wrapped up things with like a beginning, a middle and an end. And at the end, everything like is fully kind of neatly tied up. I feel like you just need an exciting beginning, some kind of point to the story. So you're not just telling me about when you went out to go and buy more toilet roll and then there wasn't some, but then there was some. Like unless and if nothing happened, don't tell me that story. And then just kind of end it where it feels comfortable to end it and don't feel like you need to put every single tiny bit of detail in. But I would say just try dropping in little action scenes. Just try when you're telling a story, describing who was there, what did they look like? The most important things for doing action scenes is what did it look like? How did I feel? That's another thing is I think people often leave out how they felt about stories. And those are the things that make us care. You know, I can tell you, I told a story at the storytelling show in London, and then I started one in Toronto. And you can think that's right. But if I say I told the storytelling show in Toronto, and I felt like I got to spend time with my granny, and it had this profound effect on me, suddenly you care about what I'm saying so much more. So what did it look like? How did I feel? Those are the two things that you want to be asking yourself when you're telling a story. Trevor, I want to try something with you, which is an exercise that I do with my clients and when I run workshops on storytelling, which I think would be a really good example of this. Are you game? Sure, absolutely. Yes, yes, Marsha, I'm game. Yay! So this is an exercise that I was taught by a lady called Sage Turtle, who is my story coach, who's an amazing storyteller in Toronto. And with her permission, I teach this when I run classes and to clients and to you, Trevor. Okay, so what I want to do is, first of all, I want you to think of and then tell me the name of someone who you know really, 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 really well. My wife, Clara. Okay, so what is a personality trait that's very, very strong in Clara? And not physical trait, but personality trait. My wife, Clara, exudes warmth. She exudes warmth. Okay, can you think of a time when you were with her when she did or said something or something happened where you're like, that is so Clara, like something that where that trait was very, very prevalent? It happens 
every single day, but a specific occasion was my children are taking ballet and there was this recital and a child has a sibling who showed up and this sibling is magnetized to my wife and his mom said, yeah, you've got a special thing. And I was, that is so Clara, this child apparently doesn't talk to other adults proactively. He certainly doesn't talk to other adults in an adult way. And he turned to my wife and said, so how was your weekend? <laughs> and so clearly she created this amazing bond and trust in a short period of time with this child with like is emblematic of how she can quickly establish relationships through her warmth. Okay, that's amazing. Plus, that child is a natural networker, clearly. <laughs> but so the reason I do that exercise is because you can say to me, Clara exudes warmth. And I'm like, okay, so I have some idea of what she's like. But if you instead just told me that story about Clara, that tells me so much more about her. That's so much more powerful. And so Sage teaches this in a way for that's how you introduce characters. You know, rather than saying my grandmother is kind, you say when I was off sick from school, my grandma would bring me DVDs and she would, you know, tuck me up in bed. Rather than saying my mum is generous, I would say when my friend's friend's ex-girlfriend wanted to ask my mum a question, she offered for this girl to come and live with her rent-free for two years. Like those things are so much more powerful. And so that's another really important thing in storytelling. And even that, do you see the difference between she gave a train set to a place where she volunteers and then you telling me that story about the kid and what the mum said and the kid coming up to her? Like I had a picture of that whole ballet recital thing happening. Whereas the train set, I sort of imagined a train set and then some weird vague building that I didn't know what was in it. So do you see the difference just in those two stories? It's so much more powerful. And you've told me so much. You've told me a lot about this kid. You've told me so much about your wife just from that like one, two sentence story. Right. Absolutely. It's a classic show instead of tell. Showing is a lot more powerful than telling. Show don't tell. Show don't tell always. And I find, I don't know about you, but I find that when we are talking about ourselves, we're so immersed in our own lives and our own stories that we fail to see the story that's taking place within our lives. And so we just simply restrict ourselves to the more clinical retelling of facts as opposed to bringing to life the story. So that's when you ask yourself, what did it look like? How did I feel? You know, I could hear the passion in your voice when you're telling that story. I could hear how delighted you were by what happened with that kid and with your wife, you know, and so I knew how you felt in the way that you were telling it, but always, what did it look like? How did you feel? What did it look like? How did you feel? Super helpful. Your enthusiasm, Marsha, is infectious, and I can see why you have found your calling in doing what you do. I didn't ask you at the beginning, but I want to ask you now how you brand yourself is Yes, Yes, Marsha. And I think it's implicit, but I'd like you to explicitly answer why Yes, Yes, Marsha. What's the Yes, Yes about? I did Marie Folio's B-School, which by the way, is amazing and changed my life. And one of the exercises that you have to do as part of B-School is you have to email 25 people and ask them what your three best traits are. And you can do like an anonymous survey so that people don't, so you don't find out who said what, which is very frustrating. But it's, it's such a great exercise. I would highly recommend that anyone does it. And it's good for kind of figuring out where your strengths are, but it's also just a nice ego boost also. And one of my top three was positivity. And when it came to naming my business, my website, my last name's Shandor, no one can pronounce it, no one can spell it. So I didn't want to put it in there. 
And honestly, yes, Marsha was taken on Twitter. So I just went for yes, yes, Marsha. But it served me very well because I like that it's a bit horsey in camp because I'm a bit horsey in camp and silly. And also I have a little hand symbol for it, which I stole from the village people where I make a YYM. So on my videos, you know, I'll say Marsha from yes, yes, Marsha. And now that was just something I did just because I thought it was funny. But now people do it. People see me and they're like, yes, yes, Marsha. And it's become this big branding thing that kind of happened by accident. But where people people associate me with yes, yes. And I like that people are agreeing with me before they've even said my name. And then one friend, when I told them about it, said, it sounds like someone's having sex with you. And I said, yeah, but they're clearly having a really great time. So I'm okay with that. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Well, I think you've answered the question, but I, I want to allow you to spell it out. If people want, and I'm sure they will, to know more about you, where can they find you? So I'll put that Amy Cuddy video and any other links of things that we talked to today on the secret webpage that I'm going to make for this podcast, Trevor, which will just be yesyesmarsha.com forward slash Trevor. Terrific. Thank you. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Marsha. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was so fun. Thank you for joining us today on The Podium Project. I hope you found the conversation as engaging and helpful as I did. We love your feedback, so please share your thoughts in the comments. And we're always looking for great topics and questions to talk about. So please drop us a note at podcast at podiumconsulting.com if there's anything you'd like us to cover on a future episode. If you're not yet a member of the Podium Club, you're welcome to be one. Please head on over to podiumconsulting.com and sign up so that you can receive member-exclusive offers and insights that I only share by email. Until next time, get up on that proverbial podium and speak up. And as you do so, tell some great stories. Ones with more montage and action scenes and less voiceover.